Hello, welcome back to Female Founder World. It's Jasmine, I'm the host of the show. We've got a great guest today. Her name's Karen Danajaya, and she is the founder of a superfood latte business called Bloom. If you haven't heard of them, you're missing out. They make these beautiful like superfood blends that you use instead of like a coffee or a tea. They're lovely. And Karen's managed to bootstrap her business to seven and a half million in sales. That's what she hit last year. She stocked in over 2000 stores, including Whole Foods, no big deal. And she leads a team of 15 women. So there are all of the super exciting metrics that I just wanted to dump on you right at the beginning of the show so that you go into this conversation knowing what it is that Karen has built. And if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, what a superstar, how impressive, I want to know what she knows, there is a resource available to you guys in our Female Founder World community from Karen. It is the exact deck that she used to raise two and a half million dollars of funding in just five weeks earlier this year. Before that, Karen was fully bootstrapped. And that deck is available now in the Female Founder World community home. You can join that by clicking a link in the show notes. Super easy to join. It takes like one second to fill out the application form and it's free. And this is actually a little bit of a sneak peek. So this resource is a sneak peek. It's something that me and the team have been working on for a little while. It's going to launch later this year. It's new, it's shiny, it's super exciting. It's for our community members. And I think you're going to love it, but we're just kind of putting this one resource out there to see what you guys think, how you find it. So let us know if you're in the community home, if you find it useful, drop some comments on there and let us know. I've actually got another announcement for our community members. It is all happening in our home on Geneva.com right now. If you're free on October 27th, we have an AMA happening with Fiona Cochan. She's the founder of a beauty brand called Youthphoria. You've probably seen them all over TikTok. She does a really great job of branding and creating incredible formulas for sensitive skin. And she's hosting an AMA with our Female Founder World community. This one is actually free to attend. And she's going to be answering all of your questions about everything from product development to TikTok to scaling a skincare brand. And this is actually going to coincide with some pretty major news from the brand. I obviously can't announce it. It's not my news, but it's going to be dropping right before the AMA. So it's going to be one of these things that you're going to see it on TikTok. You're going to see it on Instagram. You're going to see the coverage and you're going to wish that you had RSVP'd for her AMA session with the Female Founder World community. So make sure it's in the calendar. You won't want to miss it. Okay, let's get into the show. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. Karen, welcome to Female Founder World. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Let's kick off with a bit of an intro for folks who don't know Bloom. What are you building over there? So I'm trying to reimagine wellness and I feel like that's so amorphous, like such a big <laughs> thing to say, but basically what I found is that supplements and wellness had become so, pre so prescriptive and so clinical. And so we're building, we're reinventing just regular cafe lattes, mint cocoa, salted caramel, pumpkin spice lattes, but with the benefits typically only found in the supplement aisle. Nice. And you started in 2017. And before that, you worked in real estate. Talk us through the early days about making that transition into running your company. Yeah. I mean, I always knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but I grew up kind of Asian household. I was going to be an accountant. Both my parents are accountants, went to business school. And so I found myself, you know, leaving university and going into commercial real estate. And I really, you know, from the beginning knew it wasn't right for me, but I didn't know what was right. 
And I'm, I'm honestly so grateful for that experience because commercial real estate is a super coffee driven, relationship driven industry. So I was going to five, six coffee meetings a day and just jittery out of my mind. Like it was making me anxious. It was upsetting my digestion. And there just what honestly wasn't anything on those menus that met my wellness goals. So that's really where Bloom was born. And so for the first year, I did both at the same time. So in the morning, I would drive out to deliver, you know, boxes to retailers. In the evening, I would catch up on invoices and emails while during the day doing, you know, the real estate nine to five. So it was, you know, they're intimately connected, but what, but so different and one kind of inspired the other. What was the turning point that made you focus on the business full time? Was it a certain revenue milestone? Was it just, you know, you didn't have time anymore? The business was just taking up too much time. What was that inflection point? That's such a good question. I get that question a lot. You know, what made you finally go all in? I Mm -hmm. think so many women run their businesses as side hustles. And I think it's different for everybody. For me, I even though I'm an entrepreneur and we're supposed to be risk adverse, like I just wasn't, you know, I didn't, I wasn't ready to quit my job and go all in until there was this proof of concept. And I really felt there was that market fit. So by the time I quit my job, we had maybe done 200,000 in sales. It was getting to the point where it was really hard to manage both and both were struggling. Mm. And I felt like there was enough proof of concept, like returning customer feedback from retailers that I was ready to go all in. Did you start out by focusing on e-commerce? It sounds like you've had retailers from the get-go. How did you balance that strategy right in the beginning in 2017, 2018? Yeah, our channel strategy has honestly been, it's changed so much because our business really grew during the pandemic and and it's, it's really shifted and changed over time as with business needs. So originally it was mostly food service. So we were an alternative on cafe menus. You could go in get a turmeric latte and get something that was, you know, good for you, caffeine free and without the syrups. But then March, 2020 hit. So at that point, eight, 85% of the business was food service. And all of a sudden it shut down overnight. And so I basically took a digital marketing course, March to April, and launched our first, uh, we launched our first themed bundle for our e-commerce store and and maybe mid-April, something like that. And our business really shifted quickly to -to direct-to-consumer in the pandemic because our retail shut down. And then, you know, today it's kind of a mix. We've got about 50% of our business is through retailers and 50% is e-commerce. And within that mix of retailers, we have food service, we've got grocery stores, we also have boutiques and lifestyle stores. So we've really like diversified our channel mix. And I honestly think that they speak really beautifully together, you know, that they all complement each other. So I've got down in my notes here that you're stocked in over 2000 stores, including Whole Foods and Nordstrom. That is not a small, that is no small feat. That is a big, big push. What does the team look like? What do the tools look like that is is driving that wholesale growth? Are you using platforms like, I don't know, Bulletin or Fair for the independent retailers? Do you have an agent that you work with? Do you have a full sales team? Talk me through that infrastructure. So for sales team, we are just starting to build it out. The first, like all our big growth years, we actually had without a sales team. And it was a lot of 
in me reaching out and inbound inquiries, but how we manage it, we actually have a separate Shopify store. So one thing, because Bloom was historically like a bootstrap business, cash flow was something I was always thinking about and really wanted to be thoughtful of. And so a lot of retailers, like the bigger that you get, they're the harder they are on your cash flow. And so I really wanted to build this bulk of retailers that were not set up for net 90 because I didn't have net 90 to give them. So we built a separate Shopify store to service our wholesalers that didn't have terms. And then we use, uh, and then we have another Shopify store for our D2C customers. And so that's, we honestly, we have flows set up for them the same way we do for our D2C customers, you know, abandoned carts, returning customer, but set up specific for the needs of a retailer. Mm. And that's how we've just, that's how we were able to grow that business without having a full-time sales team. Now it's at the point where we have a sales team to add that personal touch, to deal with like bigger retailers that, you know, definitely need to be managed a different way. But we wanted something that was lean, scrappy, adaptable, and still data-driven, like we still had analytics into how they were performing. And we just used, just basically we duplicated our Shopify store, adjusted pricing and added a login. Wow, that is really smart. I haven't actually heard of, of someone doing that before. I'd love to better understand what the what your flow looks like for, for the wholesale-based Shopify store. So now we have, you know, if we spot a retailer, like a, an independent retailer that we really want to work with, we, we can reach out to them through email or through Instagram DMs even or a phone call and, and then set them up in our, our Shopify store and they can basically, they have a minimum order that they have to hit, a threshold for volume mm-hmm. discounts and a threshold for free shipping. And they shop just like any other retail customer would, like you just accept behind a login screen so that those wholesale prices are invisible to everybody. And we also have, you know, lead generation that comes in through the website. So let's, let's say like a cafe looking for pumpkin spice latte syrup. So they can come in, apply to be a retailer. We can approve them if they're a good fit for the brand. And then again, just shopping as normal. So it's really pretty simple to manage, but of course doesn't scale to every type of retailer. So that's like kind of the flux point that we're at right now. Smart. I want to understand how the Whole Foods partnership came about. That is a dream for so many of the food and wellness brands who listen to the show. How did that kind of all get started and executed? I would say not immediately. Mm-hmm. I applied to Whole Foods probably three times before they finally accepted the product. So if anybody has anybody listening has applied to Whole Foods and it's not going the way you, you want it to, I think it's they're honestly amazing buyers, really supportive when you're in, wanna see you succeed once you're in. And I'm really glad that they waited. You know, we maybe didn't have the awareness and maybe didn't have the exact right formulations and pack types to be successful at retail. And when they said yes, I think we were ready. Basically, like Whole Foods works on a planogram. So you can only apply, like for us, we were applying for the whole body set. You can only apply certain times of year. And it is it is like a very long process where you don't have a lot of insight into how it's going to go. Now, Bloom has been on shelves for a little bit less than six months in the whole body set. And it's doing really, really well there. It was a lesson for me in not giving up and that retail relationships are long ones. I think so often when you get rejected in an email, you know, cold cold emailing and sales is not for everybody. It's not for the faint of heart, especially today. But that those are relationships you can come back to. You know, we 
we use actually something called streak, which is an integration into like, just like a Gmail account. And you can set reminders for yourself. It's kind of like a low budget CRM to follow up in for four months or six months or whatever it is. And to share notes across the team about what the feedback was so that when we're doing product formulations and things like that, we can take direct feedback from our customers and really incorporate it into our product strategy. I think that like the lesson for me with Whole Foods was just that a no isn't necessarily a no forever. Keep the door open, keep the relationship friendly and and keep working it until it converts if you really believe in your product. What was what changed between when you first reached out to them to when they actually, you know, accepted you or started expressing interest in working with Bloom? Was it just the business had was more visible and had more awareness and they could see that you had the infrastructure to support going into Whole Foods? Or was it something that changed in your retailer pitch deck or the way that you angled that email? What was the shift? Yeah, you know, I think it's like a combination of all those things. More awareness for sure, but also just the growth of the category. So, you know, five years ago, Mm. adaptogens and superfoods, it just didn't have the awareness and maybe the customer readiness to, to go on a retail shelf. And now they're building out full sets for adaptogens and superfoods. So part of it is not just awareness and visibility of the brand, but awareness and visibility of like the overall mission and the audience being ready. And then we've definitely adjusted the pitch too. So what retailers look for um, versus what a D2C pitch, you know, a landing page speaks to is really different. You know, on a D2C landing page, it's maybe like cost per serving is really important. How free shipping, the trial piece of it, what it does for you versus what you present to a retailer is more like, does it build a basket? Does it complete a set? Does it jump off the shelf? How are you going to support it in store? How does it position them against other retailers? Will it make them leading edge? It's more about what it does for the retailer business versus like the specifics of the products. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something that I really, it seems super obvious. Like me just (laughs) even saying that, I'm like, maybe I'll ask you to edit that out. But, (laughs) But I, I, didn't really, you know, I did like when you're a founder and you're in a small business, it's so much about like how you think this product is going to solve a pain point for a customer, but that's not necessarily every buyer's lens when they're, especially big buyers when they're looking at them. Yeah, that totally makes sense. How are you supporting a launch like that? When you go into a big retailer like Whole Foods, what are some of the, first of all, the activities that you might put into that deck that you say, you know, we'll, we'll do this to support And what are some of the things that you've actually done that have helped kind of move the product on shelf? So retailers like Whole Foods are going to have requirements for trade spend or MCVs is what they call them. And so we do them multiple times a year where you're kind of encouraging trial of the products, getting off shelf. So trying to get out from within the aisle to be at the ends of the aisles or places that people are really seeing you. So those are all sort of you know, programs that you want to opt into, but are also part of working with an amazing retailer like Whole Foods. We are lucky enough to have, you know, a social community that's over 100,000 people to have an email subscriber list that's almost 80,000 people. And so we use those communities as well. We, you know, really like to build awareness, to encourage them to shop in store, to communicate promotions. And something that we're building out too is passive sampling, you know, making sure that people get to actually try the product. 
But we are learning that, you know, the package that you want in a lifestyle boutique is maybe different than what you would have in a natural grocery store. Like what messages you want to communicate, what price point, what what things are most important. So those are all things that we're still working through and always trying to optimize our velocity on shelf. I think that the takeaway is kind of like, it's one thing to get the space, but you need to always be like really analyzing your performance, really looking at how people are shopping in those spaces to continue to optimize it because it's it's something that you should always be working on improving. And so when we were currently off shelf, like in October, we're doing like an off shelf promotion with Whole Foods and we're seeing seven times the sales that weekly that we typically do. So these oh, wow. promotions do do something, you know, they really make a difference. And And so opting into them communicating them, building awareness for them is really important. I want to switch gears and talk about the DTC and e-commerce business for a little bit because this whole landscape has shifted so much since you guys started in 2017. And I want to know what was working then for you and what's working for Bloom now. Yeah, it's changed a lot. <laughs> and if any, if anyone needs that validation <laughs> or has the answers, let me know. You know, last year and the year before, we relied really heavily on Meta, like lots of lots of people do Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest ads. And we've seen the reach decline for it, the ability to target decline for it. And so we are really leaning into diversification of our marketing channel mm -hmm. and, and really focusing on the long-term value and the average part value of a customer to improve the profitability of it. So we now have like, you know, a TikTok, you know, we're, we're exploring TikTok because the reach there is really, it's really different. I think it's like what Instagram was maybe five years ago yep. and investing heavily into email, you know, email flows and we, we always have them, but now it's the time we maybe spent on 10 different pieces of creative for Meta, we now spend on AB testing emails and really making sure that they're working for you. And something else that we're doing is just like more in-person activation. I think that post-pandemic, consumers are really looking to engage with brands authentically to have experiences. This idea of belonging and community and friendship, I think mm -hmm. consumers are lonelier than ever, like yeah. people in, gen in general are. And, and so we're trying to meet customers outside of. Facebook and Instagram and, and all those types of things to build more lasting relationships, like build a brand versus build marketing campaign. It's so interesting, this shift back to email and this shift back to in-person events. And I don't know, it's just like, it, it feels like if for people who've been in the space for a long time, it's like, yeah, this is, this sounds familiar. We've done, you know, we've, we've done this before, <laughs> but so many brands are doing it and they're seeing that shift now. And especially, you know, folks who maybe launched during 2020, they've launched on TikTok and that's worked really well for them, but then kind of exploring how they build that out into, like you said, a full brand and how do you create lasting brands in this like new environment is really interesting. And the reality is, is we've had some really frothy years. People were home, they were shopping, they had yeah. extra dollars in their pocket. And so brands today are being faced with lower customer sentiment, you know, inflation, interest, all those things, plus, you know, lack of efficiencies in the tools that they were relying on. So I think that it's really 
Uh, it's a time where we have to be really thoughtful about our metrics, the fundamentals of our business. You can't rely on VC dollars the way mm-hmm. that some brands have and, and starting to really try different things. It's, I don't think anyone has the answer right now. It's about trying different platforms and what works for your specific audience. How have you been funding Bloom and your growth? Bloom was bootstrapped until about a few months ago. So um, yeah, I started the business with a co-founder and it was off the side of our desks and we didn't really have like the same vision for the company. She wanted it more like a side hustle. I wanted it more to see what it could do. So Mm -hmm. uh, I bought out her stake in the business and and then, you know, COVID, all those things. Like it was like, I nailed the timing. (laughs) (laughs) It was always like really optimizing every dollar, being really thoughtful about what you do. And I wanted to take the business as far as I could bootstrap. So last year we finished with about seven and a half million in sales and it was like fully bootstrapped except for a loan Amazing. of a hundred thousand dollars from wow. like a Canadian bank, which was the only place I could get money. Like nobody, <laughs> like I, I was knocking on everyone's door for some money and everybody's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but now, um, this, this summer, we just raised two and a half million dollars our first round. It was 40% led by women or women-led groups, which I'm really proud of. And we ended up raising in about five, six weeks. Amazing. It's a, yeah, it's an exciting time. And, and that's how we're funding going forward and trying different platforms and our expansion into retail. Very cool. I'm just looking at all of the retailers. You're in 2000 Doors. You're talking Whole Foods and Nordstrom and funding that while being bootstrapped without having even access to like debt. It's just wild. I don't know how you've managed to do that. Well, I think a big part of it was honestly that we were really firm from the beginning on with retailers that we couldn't do net 90. You know, retailers really yeah. push you for they want to place big, big orders, but they want you to hold it for 120 days or whatever and Mm -hmm. we just because we were bootstrapped and we didn't have access I just literally had to say no so Mm -hmm. so I think that we were able to set up some like fundamentals about how we invoice and that really helped the business I think that's actually yeah I think that's really powerful to hear because I think you can be so excited about a retail partnership and kind of bending over backwards to make anything happen and I think there you know is a certain amount of like that you you do need to be able to do that but at the end of the day, like if it doesn't make financial sense for the business, you need to be firm about what works. And I think that a lot of people dig themselves into a hole trying to fit into the retailer's requirements. But it's, it's great to see that you're able to negotiate something that works for you guys. Yeah, I, I think that's such a good call out. And you can apply that ideology to investors too. Mm, so yeah. now, now when times are tighter and people are looking for funding and they're not getting the valuations that they want, you see founders maybe changing the lines of what they want or look for in an angel investor or a funder. And, you know, those are relationships you're going to have for a really long time. And it's not just about getting money in the door. So I think that principle of does it work, you know, fundamentally, is it going to set you up for success versus the the pressure to get a retailer on on board to get um, an angel investor on board or whoever it is it's a lesson in self-discipline and it's it's hard especially with the power dynamics in both those situations yeah. like obviously the retailer has all the power and the 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 capital provider has all the power. That's really interesting. And Karen, the last thing that I ask everyone who comes on the show is for a resource and that could be 
a book, a podcast, or maybe something more like a habit or that you're doing every day that's just been helping you as you've been up-leveling as a founder and growing the business and you think other folks should explore? Well, you know, one thing that founders tell me often is that entrepreneurship is lonely. And, and in some senses it is, right? Like nobody feels the emotional ups and downs of your business the way that you do, mm. except, for other, except for other founders. And so I found the best community in female founders who understand the emotional yeah. toll of entrepreneurship. And, but you have, to, you have to give as much as you get from those relationships. So I read a book called Meet 100 People. And here's the principle, not to downplay the book, but here's the <laughs> principle, go out and meet people and build your network because network is, it's not just about loneliness in your business. Like these businesses are on the rise too, building yep. relationships with buyers, retailers, angel investors. And some of the relationships that I made five years ago, all of a sudden it made introductions to amazing investors who are now part of our round. So I think that the importance of just, it might not be your industry. It might not seem relevant today, but taking meetings and building meaningful connections with, with founders, people associated with the startup world, people in, you know, all of that is going to be so beneficial, whether it's just learning in that meeting or maybe down the road, a door opening that you wouldn't have had otherwise. I cannot agree with that more. And that's like the whole reason that Female Founder World exists and that uh, the community exists. We have these in-person events because I just think that having that connection in person is super, super powerful. But we also have the online community for folks who don't live in, you know, a major city and still are building meaningful businesses. There's a, I'll put a link in the show notes if people want to come and join that as well, because it's a great place to find your people. For sure. It's honestly such a rewarding community too. Yeah. Like to see other women in business succeed and it's really supportive. One thing that I didn't ask you that I wanted to, wanted to grab <laughs> is your e-commerce tech stack. So some of the tools that you're using, you mentioned streaked before, streaked before is like the email low budget CRM, which is like a really good recommendation, but are there any Shopify apps that you're using? Anything that you're using for project management that you think are great? Our team uses Asana. So to, for team management, we use Slack for communication, which I'm sort of like, not sure if Slack is good or bad. Like I'm obsessed with it, but it's like too easy to send a message and not totally. find to yourself. For like our actual Shopify store, we use Rebuy to help, you know, basically make suggestions and builds cart. We also have a subscription program. We're an edible product, so we're trying to encourage subscription and reorderate. We use Typeform to do surveys. We do a lot of surveys mm -hmm. and many of our flavors are directly from customers, changes on packs, callouts. We use surveys both on the B2B side and the D2C side to inform a lot of our strategic decisions. Um, we also use heat mapping to help us with A-B testing and help us optimize on-site pages. So those are a few of the things that I think we lean on the most. For email, we're using Klaviyo. Super helpful. Thank you. Karen, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing your story and all of those amazing recommendations. It's awesome to see what you guys are building at Bloom. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to have had this chat. 